The music you just heard was not from a 1960s Broadway musical. It was actually written in the mid-1920s by American composer, Chicago composer, Leo Sowerby. It's from a piece called Cinconata, one of many pieces on our new release on CD for November 2019. Leo Sowerby selected works for solo and duo piano. As listeners to this podcast know, every time there is a new release on CD Records, we do a new Chicago Classical Podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of CD Records, and I'm delighted to have on this podcast with me Francis Crociata, who is the president of the Leo Sowerby Foundation since 1993. Hi, Francis. Good morning. So let's get right into Leo Sowerby, a Chicago composer. Can you give us a quick overview of his career from his start as a child prodigy in Grand Rapids, Michigan, his years in Chicago, and his final years in D.C.? Okay. He was born in 1895 and lived his first eight years in Grand Rapids. His stepmother was his first piano teacher. He was studious and industrious right from the beginning. By age eight, he knew that he wanted to be a composer. The first works which he wrote down that he laid claim to were dated from when he was almost 10, that being a little piece called The Dawn of Day, which unfortunately is lost. But a composition sketchbook does survive from 1910, so we have his second through eighth works, and they were of a very high quality in terms of craft and understanding of harmony. He was effectively self-taught as a composer. Once his genius was recognized, his father, who was a postal employee, sent him to Chicago, where he was boarded with a family, a distant relative, and he studied with a man named Calvin Lampert, who six months into their relationship realized that this young prodigy could teach him more than he was able mm-hmm. to teach the prodigy. And we have some actually very touching correspondence between Sowerby's father and Lampert in which Sowerby's father sent a check to pay for his tuition. It was returned immediately saying, I should pay you for the privilege of teaching this young man. He entered the American Conservatory. There he made the acquaintance of a man named Eric Delamarder, who is an important figure in Chicago musical history. He became a critic of two of the Chicago Daily Papers. He became Frederick Stock's assistant conductor with the Chicago Symphony, and he was the organist choir master of Fourth Presbyterian Church. Delamarder essentially adopted Sowerby as his closest friend and confidant. He made Sowerby his assistant at Fourth Presbyterian. Sowerby had taught himself the organ There's a story. He didn't want to pay the 25 cents an hour that practice time required, so he procured a large piece of butcher paper, sketched the organ pedal board, and taught himself pedaling at a piano keyboard using this piece of paper and the sketched pedal board. He then took his first job at Grace Episcopal Church. He was 17 at the time. He graduated from the American Conservatory in 1916, joined the faculty immediately, and worked there until World War I came along and he was among the first people to volunteer. He enlisted as a private and was put to work grooming horses. 
one of his sometimes teachers, the Australian composer-pianist Percy Granger, suggested he learn a wind instrument, that it could come in handy if the war came. So Sowerby learned the clarinet, and that got him into the 332nd Field Artillery Band. It was no time at all before the bandmaster realized that there was a superior musician sitting there in front of him, and they traded places, and the bandmaster traded his commission. So Private Sowerby became Lieutenant Sowerby. That he had to take leave to go up to Chicago to hear Frederick Stock play a work with the Chicago Symphony didn't hurt his standing in that <laughs> regard. And then he went to Europe, led the band there. He played for President Wilson, and maybe it was the result of that that he was then a lifelong Democrat which made him an odd duck at St. James Episcopal Church, which eventually became his life's work in Chicago, which was kind of a bastion of Republican Chicago politics. But they tolerated it because he was their genius. They had the organist whose works were routinely done at Orchestra Hall by Frederick Stock and the Chicago Symphony. When he returned from the war, he took up his various positions, first as assistant at Fourth Presbyterian, and on the faculty at the American Conservatory. And then a fortunate piece of luck came along. The American Rome Prize Committee decided to begin to award a fellowship in music. They announced a competition. All of the submitted compositions were regarded to be of quality insufficient to justify a fellowship. So the committee decided to give the prize to Leo Sowerby based on his reputation. Backtrack just a bit in terms of luck that came along early in his life. In 1916, Eric Martyr decided to do essentially an audition concert and hired 70 members of the Chicago Symphony. And on January 12, 1917, presented an all-Sowerby evening at Orchestra Hall. Sowerby rushed to finish everything that he had to. He orchestrated Comes Autumn Time for that occasion. He played his own first piano concerto in its original form. His first violin concerto was also played. That had been done by a pickup orchestra under Glenn Dillard Gunn a few years before. And he wrote two other works. Among those in the audience was Frederick Stock, who decided that Leo Sowerby was a genius, and he gave Sowerby essentially an open invitation. Anything you write you want me to play, I'll play. Frederick Stock was music director of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra for 37 years, 1905 till 1942. The Sowerby concert, by the way, was underwritten by a great number of people who he would eventually work for at St. James. And among the underwriters of the concert was a colleague composer, John Alden Carpenter. They weren't close. Lifelong associates probably would be a better description. And they eventually came into conflict when they were both on the board of the Music Committee of the American Academy. Sowerby and Carpenter are fairly widely regarded as the two most important Chicago composers of the first half of the 20th century. Would that be fair to say? I think so, yes. Before we go further, because I think that's a good rundown of Sowerby's early history, let's get to some music, and we're starting with the first piece on the album, which is also the earliest piece in terms of chronology. It's his 1915 Three Summer Beach Sketches, which he wrote at the age of 20. In your notes for the album, you talk about the work's harmonic adventurousness. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. If remembering that in the United States at this point, no one had heard The Rite of Spring, which had been premiered in Paris the preceding year. 
Sowerby in these works in the mid-teens was constantly experimenting, and some of his most advanced and interesting harmonies occur in those works. He earned a reputation for being an avant-gardist, as a matter of fact, to the point where famously when the uh, San Francisco Symphony did a work of his in 1920, people walked out as if they were being attacked by the assembled hordes of Schoenberg, Stravinsky, middle period Bartok. (laughs) And it was a piece that today to our ears would seem almost sanguine certainly sweeter than even, say, the Hansen Romantic Symphony. So in the teens, he was experimenting, writing pieces both to show himself off as a composer and to show himself off as a pianist, because most pianist composers early in life hoped to make it big in the way that, say, a Rachmaninoff or a Paderewski did, to have more concerts than they could possibly fulfill at big fees. And he had that vision. He had learned the organ by then, but was playing the organ basically to earn a living. It wouldn't be for a number of years before he realized that was his gift. So at that point, Sowerby was an aspiring pianist and carried that a good long way in a very short time. And the other thing you mentioned in notes is lessons Sowerby learned from Percy Granger. And I guess I should first ask, how did he get to know Granger? Granger lived in Chicago for two years before the Second World War and attached himself to the American Conservatory, which was, at the time, the European model proprietary music school. The Haystead family owned it, mostly had instrumentalists from the Chicago Symphony on its faculty, and then sort of unusual figures like Sowerby himself. And teaching piano, Granger, and during the summers, Joseph Levine, later Rosine Levine, and Godofsky, and Moritz Rosen. Sowerby made friends with Granger and then actually asked to take piano lessons with him. But of course, he brought his own compositions to those lessons. Sowerby described these more as repertory discussions. They would play works of their own and other composers they were fond of to each other. There was very little actual critiquing of Sowerby's piano technique. He was a natural pianist and had the kind of gift where he could, at a glance, play a whole orchestral score at one sitting, just a genius that one is born with, and he was born with it. They became just two colleagues throwing ideas at each other. And you mentioned specifically Sowerby took to Granger's style of identifying movements, which was not the norm in the early 20th century by any means. First, Sowerby adopted Granger's very descriptive English directions. He didn't use, after 1913, the traditional Italian tempo indications and dynamic indications. He would apply words like, my favorites are merrily with snap, to be played with verve. The three summer beach sketches movements are marked in big style, introspectively and solemnly. Here, Sowerby, like my other passion, Rachmaninoff, wasn't interested in definitive performances. There isn't a right tempo to play a Sowerby work except a tempo that works for you in the place where you're playing it. So rather than be tied down to metronome markings, he would rather a interpreter take his suggestion, what does sadly and very quietly mean in this music, and then use imagination to bring that idea to life. And then to judge it, how does it sound, was a repeated Sowerby mantra in his teaching studio with composers. 
Let's sit down and let's hear how this sounds. Does it work or doesn't it work? Let me break off there and let's hear how one of these pieces mm-hmm. sounds. The three movements of three summer beach sketches are the movement titles themselves are Light, Water, and Sand. And you've given Sowerby's version of temple markings already. So let's hear the first movement, which the full title with temple marking is Light in Big Style. And styling it is pianist Gail Quillman. You just heard the first movement of Three Summer Beach Sketches, written in 1915 by Chicago composer Leo Sowerby at the age of 20 at the time. That movement was titled Light and subtitled or marked in big style. The pianist was Gail Quillman from the new album on the Sadie Foundation mid-price line. Leo Sowerby, selected works for solo and duo piano. And my guest on this podcast is Francis Crociata, the president of the Leo Sowerby Foundation since 1993. And Francis, this might be a good time before we get back to Leo to discuss your relationship to Sowerby and his music and the role of the Leo Sowerby Foundation. I discovered the music of Sowerby when a friend with whom I studied choral conducting, composer William Ferris, came to Rochester, New York at the invitation of Bishop Sheen, who was briefly the Catholic Bishop of Rochester, New York. He wanted a composer organist, and Ferris, who had been a composition student of Sowerby's in the 1950s and early 60s, and was at the time organist of Holy Name Cathedral in Chicago, came to Rochester. I became musically conscious when I was in high school. I was chapel organist at St. Andrews where I went to high school. I met Ferris through a friend, and then over time, our relationship developed. So I apprenticed with him as a choral conductor since I aspired to be a church musician myself at the time. Sowerby died in 1968. Bill played an all-Sowerby concert, some choral works with his choir, and then a number of solo works at the organ. 
I was thunderstruck. The music spoke to me in the same way that Rachmaninoff's music spoke to me, that this was music that I formed an immediate affinity for. And then I learned a little bit about the character of Sowerby and what had occurred in his life and how he went from being one of the most celebrated Americans to being, except for his organ and choral music, a very obscure one. Basically, I wanted, and I did it for Ferris, actually, I wanted him to hear a symphony of his teacher. It took almost 20 years to bring that about. I formed what was at the time called the Sour Beef Society in the early 1970s and faced a lot of resistance. I still lived in Rochester, which is the home of the Eastman School of Music, and a great interpreter of Sowerby's music was the head of the organ faculty there, David Craighead. I took David to lunch and asked him why he didn't play the Sowerby organ concertos. And Craighead said this very diplomatically, but he says, well, right now, I don't know if I would help or hurt the cause of Sowerby's music to be playing it. It wasn't the right time. I've always seen a lot of parallels between Rachmaninoff and Sowerby, in terms of the musical establishment, they both went into long eclipse during the 1950s and 60s. They had their champions in various places, so the music never completely left the repertoire. But in the case of Rachmaninoff, if you look up his entry in the 1954 Groves Dictionary, it's shorter than a composer of that stature should have warranted and ends with the prediction that his music would be completely forgotten in 10 years. That's Groves. Wow. During the 50s and 60s and 70s, neither Sowerby nor Rachmaninoff was deemed an appropriate subject in any of the Ivy League musicology faculties for a doctoral dissertation. Most of the scholarly writing on Sowerby was done in either church-related or state institutions where there was often someone who was committed to the repertoire. The point Craighead was making is that there was very little middle ground where Sowerby was concerned. You either liked the music and was drawn to it immediately, or you weren't. I find that particularly curious in the case of Eastman because, of course, Howard Hansen ruled there during the 50s and 60s, and he wasn't exactly a radical. (laughs) No, and Hansen ended his tenure as director of the Eastman School in 1964, but he continued conducting concerts of American music for another 10 years and did Sowerby. In fact, the first orchestral work of Sowerby I ever heard was conducted by Hansen in 1966. He did uh, The Overture Comes Autumn Time, which he did very frequently over the years. Hansen also did Medieval Poem, which happened to be dedicated to Hansen. <laughs> And that he did a number of times, although not any time after 1945. Well, it's Um, interesting you give that date because one of the things you mention in the notes is a bit of an irony that it seems like Sowerby's fortunes, as far as other than his choral and organ music goes, that they turn for the worse for his fortunes came right at the time he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1946. In fact, in the Sowerby archive, there is a telegram from his publisher, Bill Gray, the owner of H.W. Gray. That reads as follows. Leo, congratulations on the Pulitzer. Now you'll be harder to sell than ever. That was meant as a joke. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, no no question about it. (laughs) Not a prediction. (laughs) And it wasn't the case, but what Gray was selling was his organ and choral music. Gray didn't publish any of Sowerby's secular output with one exception, a song cycle in 1956 called The Edge of Dreams, 
which they published specifically as a favor to the singer Mac Harrell, who sang it at the Aspen Festival. Let's use this actually uh, as an opportunity to move on to the second work on the program, which is by far the latest work. It's from these years in the wilderness, as it were, his 1959 suite for piano four hands. Interestingly, although it's 44 years later than the Summer Beach sketches, apparently it was written in the same place. Well, in the same town. Leo had a number of friends who had summer cottages in a place called Palisades Park, Michigan, right on Lake Michigan. And that became his retreat. In every year except the years he was in Rome and the years that he was abroad for the war, he would spend a good chunk of the summer and eventually he built a cottage there. In fact, I think he used some of the money that he got from one of the first Eastman Publication Awards his orchestral piece, A Set of Four, Ironics for Orchestra. And he took that money and invested in building a cabin, which served him for the rest of his life. The cabin, sadly, is gone now. The one thing Leo did, God bless him, he was very bad at titling compositions, (laughs) but in almost every Sowerby work, when he finished inking the score, he would write the date at the bottom of the last page, which has been a great help in terms of cataloging and ordering his work. And in fact, let me here say something about my late colleague, Ronald Huntington, who's the great Rachmaninoff scholar. Huntington made a catalog of Sowerby's works. You'll find, if you buy this album, an H number, which essentially numbers all of the Sowerby compositions from the dawn of day to his last work, which is a choral work put on there for the elect that he wrote while he was literally dying from a stroke. You can see his erratic handwriting change over the course of writing the piece. But that last work, the Huntington number 550, which in Paul Hume's words is five lifetimes of music. Well, let's move on to this suite. One unusual thing about it is there's no set movement order. Uh, This seems to me pretty uncommon. Yes, and I've thought a lot about this since I wrote about it for the notes. Leo wrote altogether four pieces that have the title Suite. One of those, his suite for organ, is one of the cornerstones of the organ repertoire, or rather, two movements of them are. It was written right after his great work, The Organ Symphony, the piece by which he's known the world over, published by Oxford University Press. He wrote the suite to follow up. Oxford saw fit then to publish individual movements of them and two of them became two of Leo's greatest hits, his fantasy for the flute stops and a piece called Air with Variations. The outer movements, a chorale and fugue and a march, are almost never encountered. In fact, I've never heard them live in a concert hall, but the middle movements are. Leo came to realize that a suite is basically a set of disparate pieces that might be linked together by theme or occasion, but don't organically fit together in the way that a sonata does. In terms of the two piano suites, which he wrote in the late 50s, I don't know the occasion for it, but I'm guessing that he wrote it just for colleagues that wanted a concert work to be able to be played by two pianists when only one piano was available. Its first performances were by colleagues at the American Conservatory. I assume they were experimenting in terms of the orders in which they were played. The three performances during his lifetime, of which I'm aware, every different performance was in a different order, 
And this recording by Miss Quillman and Miss Sen uses still another order. And I should add that at two of those three performances, Gail Quillman was present, although she wasn't performing them. So basically, it was a work in progress and still is. And I think that Leo probably wouldn't object to it being kept open. And I don't know that Leo would object to individual movements being played out of the context of the full suite. Which we're about to do on this podcast. Oh, and one last observation yeah. is that none of those orders of the three performances nor this recording mirror the orders in which the pieces were written. Since he dated each movement, oh, of course, we do know how they came out of his mind. About this particular performance, although the piece is titled Suite for Piano Four Hands, it's actually performed on two pianos here. And that was a judgment that was made by Gail and Julia and simply because it worked. They were doing the rest of the works which were generically for two pianos. They played all of this repertoire in concert several times in the Chicago area and decided that it worked for two pianos. And since Leo's premise always was, how does it sound? They thought it sounded pretty good, and so did I. So that's how it's going forth to the world. And finally, in the notes, you mentioned some influences or echoes, specifically in what are done as the second and fourth movements in this particular performance. Let's start with the second one, which is a fugue with the marking, one of these wonderful markings, with verve. And you note echoes of Samuel Barber in this movement. I certainly do, in a couple of works. Leo and Barber were good friends. When Barber was proposed for the Rome Prize, Leo was on the committee that year and, of course, spoke very passionately that he should be sent. There was a pianist who kind of has a cult following. He's passed away now named William Dotman, who went to the University of Michigan and was a legendary teacher during his life. I never heard him play, but many who did say he was one of the great pianists and specifically a great interpreter of the Barber Piano Sonata the famous piece written for Horowitz. Leo wrote a letter to Barber saying, you've got to hear this young man play your sonata. Barber wrote back to Sowerby saying, you know, I'm constantly being recommended pianists to play my sonata, and I'm constantly disappointed. This is the exception. Thank you for bringing this young man to my attention. Wow. There's another wonderful in the Sowerby archive. In 1953, Fritz Reiner did the Prayers of Kierkegaard of Barber's with Chicago Symphony. Leo couldn't be present because he was at exactly the same hour in Washington conducting his Canticle of the Sun. So he wrote to Barber saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to see you and here's why and so on. Barber's reply was, damn it, Leo, I always wish I could write for a chorus like you. Great story. So the last movement, also a wonderful title, Fast and Glittering, you note two things about it. One, that it may owe something to Sowerby's former student, also Chicago composer, Ned Roram, and through a story from another Sowerby student, William Ferris, that it in fact meant to depict the rides on cable cars in San Francisco. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, in the first instance, that's something which I just heard, having not long ago heard a recording of a piano toccata of Roram's that was written while he was a student of Sowerby's, an unofficial student of Sowerby's. He was in Sowerby's harmony and theory classes at the American Conservatory, and famously, on two occasions, Sowerby suggested he go home and work before he comes back to class. Roram once said, he threw me out a couple of times. <laughs> 
But he also wrote in his diaries that Sowerby was the first real composer to take he Roram seriously as a composer. They became good friends in the early 1940s at the time of that toccata. And when I heard it, on a disc, by the way, that also included the Sowerby piano toccata, I thought, boy, this is familiar. And then I realized that what I was hearing was this piece echoed in the fourth movement of the suite. And there, it's something that Leo did fairly frequently. When he had a really talented student, there was a point at which he would tell that student, you're no longer a student, you're now a composer. And at that point, they became like Sowerby and Granger. They became colleagues and friends who were learning from one another. I can show you instances where Sowerby's music reflects William Ferris and vice versa. There was a piece that was done at the Sowerby Festival we did in Chicago in 1995, an unpublished organ work called Festival. And I was sitting in Fourth Presbyterian Church, and there was a moment in which there was a trademark Ferris characteristic. And my neck craned back to Bill, who was sitting three pews back, and he had this big grin on his face (laughs) as if he knew exactly what I was hearing. And Will's story about the cable cars? Leo, a lot of his success with real major symphony orchestras in the 1950s was really due to his being championed by E. Power Biggs, who could get Sowerby's works or any works he wanted to champion done by big orchestras. In 1958, the American Guild of Organists convention was in San Francisco, and Biggs invited Sowerby to come out to conduct a piece called Concert Piece for Organ and Orchestra with members of the San Francisco Symphony, and then said, well, since you're going to be there, I'm playing the Poulin Concerto, so why don't you conduct that too? Then Leo's friend David McKay Williams, the longtime music director, actually Stokowski's successor at St. Bart's Church in New York, moved to San Francisco, and he would go out to visit him often too. They both sat on several music committees of the Episcopal Church, And Leo just loved the city of San Francisco. Now, I happen to know Leo was also a train buff. I have a wonderful picture of him on the platform of the Michigan Central Railroad in Grand Rapids heading back to Chicago with a timetable in his hands. And I'm told that he collected timetables. He naturally had an affinity for railed transportation, and there's nothing more unique in the cable cars. I'd always heard it right away when I heard those high clanks in the movement that they sounded like the bell of the cable car. And I mentioned that to Bill, and he says, oh, yeah, I I mentioned that to him, too. And he says, yeah, he says, maybe you're right. Leo never liked to actually project his own inspiration on the hearer. He wanted his listeners' imaginations to be engaged themselves. But there's certainly a lot of up-and-down movement in this No, No, I mean, there's uh, no no question that— I'm convinced that it is the case, and, and Bill's conversation with Leo sort of confirms it. Well, let's hear that then. So this is the movement titled, another great title, Fast and Glittering. It's from Leo Sowerby's 1959 Suite for Piano Four Hands, and it's performed actually on two pianos by Gail Quillman and Julia Sen.
You just heard a movement titled Fast and Glittering from the Suite for Piano Forehands by American-slash-Chicago composer Leo Sowerby. It was actually performed on two pianos by Gail Quillman and Julia Sen from their new album on Sadie Foundation Line called Leo Sowerby Selected Works for Solo and Duo Piano. That was performed as the fourth movement of this suite, but in fact, this four-movement suite doesn't have a set movement order, so if you ever hear it in concert, you might hear that elsewhere in the suite. But let's actually talk about the players now on this album, uh, who are pianists Gail Quillman and Julia Sen, and Sen in this case is spelled T-S-I-E-N. Francis, what can you tell me about them? If anyone deserves the title, the most loyal student of Sowerby's in history. It's Gail who actually founded the Leo Sowerby Foundation in 1989 as the backdrop for doing observances in Chicago called Remembering Leo on his 95th birthday. Gail has been performing Sowerby since the late 1950s when she attended the American Conservatory herself. She was a young woman of 16 when she entered his theory and composition class. Leo, who was very fond of quips and double entendres, described Gail as having the best stems in the class. Mm. I had mentioned earlier that she had been present at a couple of the performances of the Suite for Piano, although she didn't play it herself, but she did participate in those concerts accompanying violinists in a couple of Leo's violin sonatas. She taught in Chicago for most of her life. She was a piano student of Grace Welsh and was as loyal to Grace Welch as she was to Leo Sowerby and founded and ran for two decades a piano competition in honor of her teacher. I was honored myself to be on the jury for several of those competitions. And I'm happy to say a number of the laureates of the Grace Welsh competition have Sowerby works in their repertoire. And I still, every now and then, see a glimmer. I have a search in Google on Sowerby, and as recently as three months ago, saw that one former Welsh Prize recipient played Suite from the Northland, a solo piano work that was later orchestrated in Manila. Gail just has loyally performed as much Sowerby as she could. She recorded two discs for the New World Record label in 1989, two piano trios, including a big mature work from 1953, and then a recording of solo piano works, a different Passacaglia for piano than the one she includes in this album. She started doing duo performances with a student of hers, Julia Sen, and a former student by then, and they were a working piano duo in the Chicago and Illinois area. They toured a fair bit until around 1998 or 99. When Gail decided to retire, she had always been drawn to contemplative and mostly Eastern religions, and she moved to Thailand to live in a Buddhist monastery. And she just came back. I understand her health is not as good as we'd like. So just to be clear, on this album, the works for solo piano, and we heard already a movement from three summer beach sketches, and we're about to hear the other solo piano work, an excerpt from it, Pascalia Interlude and Fugue. The works for solo piano are performed by Gail Quillman, and the works for duo piano are both Gail and her former student, Julia Sen. 
This album is actually on Sadie's mid-price line, Sadie Foundation, where we license material that's already extant, although usually not already previously released, at least not digitally, because this album was actually recorded in Chicago, but in 1997 and has obviously sat in the can for over 20 years. Why is that? We wanted to get this down while they were still playing together, but I had no offer from anyone to actually put it out. So basically it was to get it in the can while Gail and Julia were still performing together is what you're saying. Yes, exactly right. Well, I'm glad you did. (laughs) So let's move on to the next piece on the album, which is the only other one for solo piano. And it's his 1931 Pasacalia Interlude and Fugue. And I should note that on Sadie Records, uh, we have recorded the orchestral version that he wrote how much later? About a year and a half. There's a story here, too. I mentioned earlier that Frederick Stock gave kind of an open invitation to Leo. Anything that you write that you want me to play, I'll play. I don't think he was counting on Leo being quite as prolific (laughs) as he was. And... In the early 1930s, which were the early Depression years, and the Depression hit the concert industry as well as other industries, Stock was getting a lot of pressure from the board of trustees to do programs which were essentially standard repertoire, stuff that would sell immediately, stuff that wouldn't scare people away. He announced Pasacaglia Interlude and Fugue, and then the board... And I don't know how the politics of this worked, but Stock wound up telling Sowerby that I'm going to have to change the program and I'm not going to be able to do your piece this year. The only year, in fact, that Stock skipped a Sowerby work on the programs of the Chicago Symphony until his death in 1942. And it was the only moment of discomfort between the two of them. Leo wrote back saying, but I've told all my friends that the work is being done. And it was a tense moment between them. And as it turns out, when the Chicago Symphony finally did do Pasacaglia Interlude and Fugue, it got a lot of attention, in part because it was the first orchestral Pasacaglia apparently known to have been written by an American. Hmm. And they used that as kind of the hook to glean publicity, and Associated Press picked it up so that the fact that the work was done got some national notice. And that was the moment, that is 1933, at which Leo's prominence, if you wanted to pick one moment as the high watermark, that would have been it. He was profiled in Time magazine. Eugene Ormandy made his New York debut conducting the Philadelphia Orchestra in Sowerby's tone poem Prairie, which is also recorded by you on your main label. His cello concerto was done by Alfred Wallenstein in Carnegie Hall. It was a big year. Pasacaglia Interlude and Fugue wasn't a singular experience. It was just one of many. When Fritz Reiner came to Chicago in 1953, there was an exchange of letters, Leo saying, usually I don't write to conductors. I think it's unseemly, but since you know my work, the least I can do is tell you that I'm still alive and here in Chicago. (laughs) Reiner wrote back saying, I don't have to know who's who or what's what in Chicago to know who Leo Sowerby is. Send me your work. And he chose Pasacaglia Interlude and Fugue to do, but then it was a singular occasion. When he did it in 1955, it was probably the only major orchestra to play a Sowerby work. And it is really a marvelous orchestration, and I encourage people to hear it on an album on Sadie Records conducted by the legendary Chicago conductor Paul Freeman that also includes Sowerby's Second Symphony, which also ends with a fugue. But since you mentioned about the Pasacaglia form, Sowerby has a bit of history with this form, including for piano, right? 
He does indeed. In fact, he wrote altogether 13 works in that form for instruments including the organ, of course, two for piano, a passacaglia, well, it's a chacon actually, for tuba, a passacaglia for carillon. There was a carillon at Washington Cathedral and he wrote two big works for the carillonor there. A passacaglia for violin, his last violin sonata ends with a passacaglia. And of course, one for orchestra, and I'm probably forgetting a couple, but it comes to 13 altogether of passacaglias or chacons. And how would you say the piano version compares to the later orchestration? Well, that's interesting. I can find no instance of the Passacaglia having been done in Sowerby's lifetime. I think I mentioned that a great deal of his solo music was written for a pianist named Frank Mannheimer, who was a classmate at the American Conservatory in the teens and who later became a very important pedagogue and disciple of the British piano pedagogue Tobias Maté. There is still a very active Tobias Maté Association in America, and Mannheimer is a very revered figure among Maté method students. This was kind of the high time of their friendship and collaboration, and he wrote both Passacaglias, we think, for Mannheimer, the second for sure, as well as the Florida Suite, which was a work played the world over and published by Oxford University Press. I'd like to tell one brief observation. When you produced recordings with the Czech National Symphony under Maestro Freeman, I was present, and I noticed that the first couple of pieces that were recorded were very raucous, loud, kind of bangy overtures. The concert overture comes autumn time and so on. And the musicians were not quite, but almost complaining. In fact, I heard one say, why don't you have us record the New World Symphony? The next session started with the Passacaglia, and you could see the transformation in the orchestra almost immediately. And they were won over the rest of the way, that all of a sudden they realized, hmm, this is a real composer, isn't it? And, of course, the fact that it was one of the formal Baroque dance forms probably didn't hurt Leo's case with these Czech musicians that have tons and tons and tons of music thrown at them. It's with those Baroque forms, you'll never hear them treated as romantically by anyone uh-huh. as, as you will hear. Well, let's hear an example of that right now. It's the longest single movement on the album at over 16 minutes. So we'll hear an excerpt, and the excerpt is from Passacaglia, Interlude and Fugue, 1931, originally solo piano composition by Leo Sowerby, performed here by Gail Quillman.
We just heard an excerpt from a piece called Pasacalia, Interlude and Fugue by Leo Sowerby, American composer, a very important Chicago composer. And this is from a new album on CD Records, Leo Sowerby Selected Works for Solo and Duo Piano. In this case, uh, solo piano, and the solo pianist was Gail Quillman. And if you like what you're hearing, by the way, you can get this album on sadierecords.org. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. You can also find it on Archive Music. If you prefer to download, it's available on iTunes. If you like to stream music, you can go to Apple Music, Spotify, Idagio, Prime Phonic, you name it, and we're there. And we hope you'll check out this really fun album of music spanning, really, Sowerby's whole career. And in fact, I wanted to say, now that we've heard works from three different decades, can you describe Sowerby's musical evolution? Or does his music stay fairly consistent? Yes, it stays consistent in terms of craft. I mentioned that most of his most advanced music harmonically he wrote when he was in his 20s and 30s. He used to complain by the 1940s, the point at which his popularity was beginning to wane, that is, after Stock's death in 1942, he was attacked from both directions by critics. The avant-gardists found him to be old hat, and the traditionalists found him to be too avant-garde and dissonant and experimental. And there's truth in both of those because his palette was so wide. Late in his life, he had several students who wrote using 12-tone techniques. I think it was Ferris asked him, how could you teach something? And he said, well, once you understand the style, you understand that there are rules just like in any other style. My job isn't to give a composer a style. It's to take that composer's own voice is able to say and give him the tools to say it. Leo himself said, I just assume people not say there is a Sowerby style. I'd like to surprise you every time. Hmm. And in fact, he surprised his aficionados among organists in the early 1960s to actually produce a work that used a tone row. An interesting piece, uh, one of two sketches called Nostalgic. Which is an interesting title for a piece using a tone row, I must say. It is indeed. In fact, I sent it to David Schrader yesterday. Oh, thank you for doing that. In hopes that might be a piece that he'll find very interesting. And in fact, I should note that David Schrader is recording an album of music of two Chicago composers. Well, one, a former Chicago composer in Frank Furco, and the other one, Leo Sowerby, will be recording the Sowerby half of that in 2020 for probable 2021 release. So be sure to look out for that. Even though you mentioned Sowerby's wanting to surprise people from piece to piece, I wanted to quote something from a Sowerby student in your notes, uh, Ronald Stalford. He was referring to Three Summer Beach sketches, but I think it certainly applies to Pascalian Interlude and Fugue as well, referring to chords you'd never encounter in a score not having the name Sowerby at the top of the page. And I think there is something distinct about Sowerby's harmonic style. Can you kind of put your finger on that? Yes, and that comes again to the desire to surprise, to do something unexpected. He wasn't interested in novelty for novelty's sake, but he was interested in novelty as a way to challenge the imagination of his listener. He was one of the first composers to borrow from both folk music and especially jazz, of which Chicago was one of the cauldrons in the teens and early 20s in terms of the whole formation of the world of jazz music. You'll find unexpected elements of jazz in Sowerby's service anthems. He wrote about a couple hundred altogether anthems and settings of the Mass. 
a number of them, if someone told you that George Gershwin wrote this under an assumed name, yeah. you'd almost believe it. Well, in fact, we'll be getting to the Sowerby-Gershwin connection very soon. But speaking of another composer whose music is somewhat reflected in Sowerby's, the next piece on the album is the prelude for two pianos. And you note that it's more English austerity than French sensuality, more Delius than Debussy. And you recall a line from a musicologist, Paul Henry Lang, about Sowerby calling his music like Delius through stained glass. And I find this interesting because I certainly do hear this connection. But what's striking for me, you talked earlier about how much Sowerby's music immediately spoke to you. And as you know, when you presented Sowerby to me for the first time in the early 1990s, it made an immediate connection with me as well, which is why I've been so glad to champion his music on Sadie Records over the years. Delius's music doesn't speak to me at all, and yet I do hear the connection. So what is it about Sowerby's music that for someone who doesn't particularly like Delius, yet I can find Sowerby so attractive? I think that Delius spoke to Leo in a very personal way, and it came out of his own upbringing and especially his affinity to his English and Canadian roots. That was what was nurtured in his lessons with Granger, who was, of course, very much taken with Delius's music. Leo used to cite Delius in two ways. First, the fact that Delius, like himself, was a taste that either you had or you didn't. It wasn't something you were likely to acquire. The music was going to speak to you immediately or it wasn't going to speak to you immediately. And the second thing that he said is that interpreting my music is very much like approaching Delius's. Successful performances of Sowerby, like successful performances of Delius, tend to be slower to allow the listener to hear a work unfolding, that there's a great deal going on that you'll miss if somebody just plows through it at great next speed. Now, there are, of course, pieces like Fast and Sinister where speed is sort of the point. I um, would argue that comes autumn time benefits from a fairly brisk performance as well. No question about it. Well, yes, the A and the return to A sections Yes, do. that's what I mean, yeah. But the middle section, one would have to say, that's one of the examples of the B theme of Comes Autumn Time is Delian in kind of a chipper American sense. <laughs> they did meet, by the way, when Delius was on his deathbed. Leo liked to travel, and Delius started corresponding, and Delius sent him a violin sonata back when Leo was writing a lot for violin. He wrote a concerto, three sonatas, two suites, and then a whole bunch of unpublished things early in his life. But he left a body of cello and of violin music as big as his piano output. For me, I was thinking about this too, and I think part of it for me is Sowerby's constant use of counterpoint. Sometimes it's very explicit when he writes fugues, but I think there's always that element somewhere in the texture, and I think maybe that's the stained glass or refractory element that maybe sets Sowerby's music apart. I agree. Well said. Well, let's hear an example of that now. Here's an excerpt from Sowerby's Prelude for Two Pianos, performed once again by pianists Gail Quillman and Julia Sen.
We just heard an excerpt from Leo Sowerby's 1932 Prelude for Two Pianos from the new album, Leo Sowerby Selected Works for Solo and Duo Piano, recorded in 1997 by pianists Gail Quillman and Julia Sen. And before we get to the last big work on the program, there's a short piece titled Fisherman's Tune. I don't think there needs to be too much said about it. Leo wrote a lot of these short type pieces, whether they're for piano or band or, or organ. Say a word about Stourby's interest in these sort of miniatures. Well, one of his published talks was Folk Music, the Revitalizer in Music. He didn't derive this from his lessons with Granger. He was already there. He was very influenced by a group of Canadian folk singers, and I'm going to draw a blank on their name now, but sisters that toured that he heard several times at concerts and country fairs that drew his attention to folk music. A couple of his big hits were a setting of a folk tune called Money Musk. Even Pierre Monteau and the San Francisco Symphony played several times. Fisherman's tune he wrote, we think, probably with Granger in mind, and Granger himself played it in concert. We don't know specifics in terms of the two-piano version, but most of his two-piano work was done for Guy Frazier and Lee Pattison, who were a very popular dual piano team in the 20s and 30s. You'll find just tons of these little things, and another piece that would meet this, at least in spirit, was his piano variations on The Irish Washerwoman that he later orchestrated and was recorded by Eugene Ormandy in his then-orchestra, the Minneapolis Symphony. And, of course, there's also variations on Pop Goes the Weasel, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> but that's a, a set of woodwind content variations that could easily be the sound score for a cartoon. So sometimes it's actual tunes. In this case, is this based on a folk tune, or is it him creating a piece in a folk tune style? I think it's the latter, and it kind of has a parallel in... The one movement of his suite from the Northland that he didn't orchestrate, The Lonely Fiddlemaker, in which he wanted to encapsulate in music the spirit of someone he'd encountered from the Northland was directly a reflection of a trip that he took completely circumnavigating by car of Lake Superior. It wouldn't surprise me if Fisherman's Tune came out of that experience. You note that the first document performance of the two-piano version of this was 1935. When does the solo piano original date from? 1922. It was unpublished. The solo version eventually was published, and it was a North Carolina firm in the mid-1990s. And they visited Sowerby's heir, Ronald Stalford, and just said, do you have a small piano piece that we could publish? And that happened to be the one that was at the top of the pile. All of his music was sitting in Stalford's attic for a long time in very neat piles, pretty much as Leo left them. I guess when he died, they were all in a closet in his apartment near Washington Cathedral. Of course, they completely filled the closet as somebody who wrote 550 works would. Well, it's a delightful little piece, and let's hear it. This is Fisherman's Tune, the two-piano version, as performed by Gail Quillman and Julia Sen. Thank you. 
you just heard Fisherman's Tune, tune actually by Leo Sowerby, as performed by duo pianists Gail Quillman and Julia Sen from the new album on CD called Leo Sowerby Selected Works for Solo and Duo Piano. And we now come to the last work on the program and in some ways the most famous. Now, earlier we heard the Pascalia Interlude and Fugue, which started life as a piano piece and was later orchestrated and, as you note, was performed by major orchestras and at key points in Sowerby's career. Here we have the opposite, a piece that was originally written for band and then later came the two-piano version. And there's quite a story about how this piece and also another piece called Monotony came about. Can you talk about that? Sure. You know, well-known is the fact that Paul Whiteman and the Paul Whiteman Jazz Orchestra commissioned a significant number of mostly American composers to write works for jazz orchestra. The most famous of these is Rhapsody in Blue of George Gershwin. Among those who came to Whiteman's attention was Sowerby, who he regarded as the most talented man he'd ever encountered. Mm. He said that in an interview. He invited Leo to tour with his orchestra through the Midwest. I believe they went as far west as Wyoming. On the tour were also Gershwin himself, who was soloing in Rhapsody in Blue, and Ferdy Groffet, who was the staff arranger and copyist. And there was one more. Zess Comfrey was along on these. Leo was along specifically to sit next to the virtuoso players who were all doublers on various instruments. If you look at the scores of Cinconata and Monotony arranged for essentially jazz orchestra, there are string parts. It's not just band. All of the parts are written with specific names rather than instruments. The men in the Whiteman Orchestra and the various instruments that they would play and then change off with other instruments. The first piece that was premiered by Whiteman was this work, Cinconata, which Leo subsequently arranged almost immediately for Mayer and Pattison to use in their concert work. And you know there are two pianos in the original, right? Yes, indeed. They have a different role than... Obviously, than, yeah. Yes, and in fact, there's also a banjo. There was a house banjo player in the Whiteman band. We can say a word about the other piece, which is titled Monotony. We can't get away from that since it was on the score, but it was sort of inviting negative criticism. They actually, in later performances, changed the name of the piece to Suite for Jazz Orchestra and Metronome. Monotony comes from an idea that Leo derived from the most popular novel of that year, Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt, which was a description. I mean, Babbittry actually entered the language as a notion of sleepwalking through life. And each movement is a specific part of the life of a Babbitt, of a businessman who goes to dinner, goes to a social occasion, goes to the theater, And then the last movement is a set of variations which describe in Leo's mind eight archetypical music critics. In the performances, you had this metronome behind which Paul Whiteman was conducting. The metronome was silent. It was set so all of the markings, one of the few occasions where Leo did use metronome markings, were all mathematical derivatives of the movement of the metronome. And the metronome had to be six and a half feet because Whiteman was six feet four inches tall. (laughs) 
Then there was a woman in kind of vaudeville garb to hold up placards to announce what was going on in the piece. Cocktails at five, dinner, a night at the theater, two on the aisle, and then the music critics, which were the sentimentalist, the modernist. The ancient mariner was the last one. And I should note that both works we've been discussing, the original jazz orchestra versions of Cinconata and Monotony will appear on a CD release in 2020. May 1st is the 125th birthday anniversary of Leo Sowerby. Of course, everybody's thinking of 2020 as a major birthday year for Beethoven at 250. Well, at exactly half that is Leo Sowerby, and we certainly will be celebrating that. The tour you mentioned happened in 1924, and I have to quote a line from your program notes because it's so much fun. It must have been quite a tour, with Gershwin, in defiance of the prevailing 18th Amendment, converting Sowerby from scotch to martinis. Says Comfrey wasn't particular and drank whatever came to hand. Grofe couldn't party. He was put to the endless task of copying band parts. I just love that little story. So as we mentioned, this piece was originally for full jazz orchestra, and there are two pianos in it in an orchestral role. And then uh, Sowerby made a version, how much later? Almost immediately. It was in the same year that it was premiered. So later in 1924, Sowerby made a two-piano version. How was he able to capture the essence of this big orchestration in two pianos? Actually, it's easy to conceive Cinconata put into pianistic terms. If you hear this piece and didn't know that it was a reduction of an orchestral work, you wouldn't necessarily infer from what you were hearing that an orchestral work existed. It's that pianistic. At the very beginning of the podcast, as our introduction music, I played a very short excerpt from this. The tune probably sounded familiar because it's the exact same tune that Cy Coleman used in his hit 1966 musical Sweet Charity, the song If They Could See Me Now. And apparently this is pure coincidence that 42 years after Sowerby wrote this tune, Coleman picked it up because you've told me there's probably no way Coleman ever heard this piece. Coleman was born five years after it was written and after all of the orchestral performances during Sowerby's lifetime it occurred. Well, I guess this is just a great example of a musical coincidence. So let's hear a portion of this really fun piece, Cinconata, version for two pianos by Leo Sowerby. Once again, the performers are pianists Gail Quillman and Julia Sen.
we just heard an excerpt from a piece called Cinconata, originally written for jazz orchestra. Here, this is the two-piano version that Leo Sowerby wrote soon after touring the work in 1924. That was from the new CD album, Leo Sowerby Selected Works for Solo and Duo Piano, and the pianists are Gail Quillman and Julia Sen. And if you like it, you should check it out on sadierecords.org or on Spotify or Apple Music or iTunes or Archive Music, wherever you like to get your music, it's available. And it's a really fun disc. We've now heard music spanning Leo Sarby's almost entire career. Earliest piece on the album dates from 1915, the latest from 1959. And now that people have had a sampling of the entire program, what would you, Francis, like them to take away from it? Again, because Leo was most interested in how the listener perceives his music, how they respond themselves, someone who doesn't have a specific style, who's always doing something surprising, you're not likely to respond to everything in the same way or even everything at all. It's very unlikely, I think, that a listener won't find something to enjoy here and probably several things. There is enough here, if Sowerby is an unknown name to you, to decide that Sowerby is for you or isn't for you. It's been my experience that people who haven't heard it and are exposed to persuasive performances by people who believe in the music themselves tend to come away surprised, wishing to know more. And of course, there's now much more music to hear than there ever was accessible during Sowerby's life. And I would note on Sadie Records, as I mentioned earlier, we've championed his orchestral music quite a bit. There are two albums recorded uh, with conductor Paul Freeman and the Czech National Symphony Orchestra, and also his Chicago Symphonietta of orchestral music, including Sowerby's Second Symphony. There is the Pulitzer Prize-winning Cantata, The Canticle of the Sun, with the Grand Park Orchestra and Chorus, conducted by Carlos Kalmar. That's on an album called The Pulitzer Project, by the way. And then on an album titled American Works for Organ and Orchestra, there is his brilliant concert piece for organ and orchestra, performed by David Schrader, and again, the Grant Park Orchestra, conducted by Carlos Kalmar. And if I had to pick one piece to introduce people to Sowerby's style that really sort of has everything in it, I would pick that piece, the concert piece for organ and orchestra, which is also about the most brilliant blending of organ and orchestra I've ever heard. I agree. I think the concerto in C similarly has that same effect, but that's never been recorded commercially. Well, maybe that's a future project. (laughs) Well, there are actually two organ concertos, neither of which have been commercially recorded. As well as others that have been. Everything else has been. There are commercial recordings of his five other works, uh, concerted works. There are medieval poem, the classic concerto, concert piece, festival music. The fifth, my thumb number is a piece called A Triptych of Diversions, and that's not been recorded. So there's three works that could make a nice project sometime in the future. Well, speaking of the future, what is next for Leo Sowerby, both in the immediate future and, of course, next year, 2020, the 125th birthday anniversary year? There are recordings still in the can that we'll be making every effort to bring out. Probably the most exciting project, at virtually the same time that he wrote Cinconata or immediately before, Leo wrote his biggest work, a psalm symphony, a five-movement work for chorus, orchestra, eight soloists, organ. It's a work of the scale of the Mahler Eighth Symphony. He wrote it while he was in Rome. 
to my knowledge, he never put it about for anyone to look at seriously to perform. When he was at Washington Cathedral in the 60s, he and Paul Calloway, who was the music director of the cathedral at the time, talked about recording it. He was kind of superstitious. The work existed in his catalog as large work for chorus and orchestra, untitled and unperformed. In the 60s, when he realized he better give it a title, he said, well, my working title was a symphony of Psalms, but Stravinsky has already taken that (laughs) title. Either Stelford, his heir and student, or Paul Calloway, his colleague on the cathedral, says, why don't you just call it Psalm Symphony? The point is the University of Kansas, a doctoral student, has gotten a grant and is making a reduction for organ of the orchestral part and is going to do selections from the middle movements and both outer movements on Leo's birthday, 2020, do the first sounding of any of the music of this work, which Leo was almost superstitious about. He did allude to the fact that something of a spiritual nature occurred while he was in Rome, while he was there for the Rome Prize, a transformative experience. And it was after that that he became a confirmed member of the Episcopal Church and took minor orders. Religion was a very quiet but important part of his life, as well as being a working church musician. He was a committed Christian. And of course, we've already noted, and also for the birthday anniversary, we'll be coming out with a new album on Sadie Records of Sowerby's Music for Jazz Orchestra and Jazz and Wind Band. Yes. So be sure to look out for that. And finally, I'd like to ask the question we always ask guests on this podcast, and you'll obviously have a little bit of a different perspective on this than some of the previous guests, because most of the guests, of course, we have on this podcast are actual Chicago artists. But from your perspective, can you talk a little bit about what's special about the Chicago classical music scene, both historically and more recently? Yes, and here my perspective is going to come not only because of my teacher, Bill Ferris, Sowerby, who is kind of half of my musical passion, the other half being Rachmaninoff. When one thinks of Rachmaninoff, you think of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Rachmaninoff cycle and all of the recording he did with that orchestra. But it's not really known that Frederick Stock was as much of a champion of Rachmaninoff's music and made every appearance of Rachmaninoff in Chicago a Rachmaninoff festival. The event which is very surprising to me, Rachmaninoff wrote the Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini and premiered it with Stokowski in the Philadelphia and recorded it in 1934. He then brought it to Chicago Mrs. Rachmaninoff left a wonderful reminiscence about how great the Chicago Symphony rose to the occasion. They, of course, played the premiere, and the ovation was so loud and long that Stock and Rachmaninoff came back and reprised the last eight variations, and actually that occurred on both nights that they did it. Chicago was a part of the mainstream of music right from the beginning, and that's thanks to one man, Frederick Stock, who was the most universal in terms of his tastes. He did Schoenberg, he did Sowerby, he did Stravinsky, he did Rachmaninoff, and he did it all extremely well. And we should note, again, Frederick Stock was music director of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra for 37 years, from 1905 all the way till 1942. 
And it was during that time, of course, that Leo came to maturity and wrote most of his great works and had the thing that a composer most needs, and that was a sympathetic ear. Bring it to Dr. Stock, and he'll play it. Did I mention at Stock's request that Comes Autumn Time was played at Stock's funeral? Mention what else was on the funeral, because that makes it really impressive. It was Wagner and Beethoven. Well, thank you so much, Francis. It's been great having you on this podcast. You are certainly a wealth of knowledge on Leo Sowerby and other topics. And I look forward to speaking with you again when we do our podcast for the release in 2020. Thank you. This has been another Sadie Classical Chicago podcast. I'm Jim Ginsburg, founder and president of Sadie Records. Thank you for listening.